Hey podcast listeners, welcome back. I know it's been a while since we've had an episode and I am excited today to share with you a bonus episode that's going to go a little longer than our usual ones to make up for the the gap in time. Today I talk with uh, a good friend um, and just a brilliant mind, um, Douglas Bouchon, who is an instructional designer um, at the University of Washington. Doug and I actually got to know each other at the University of Washington where we worked together um, and it was in my many discussions with him that I became pretty fascinated with the different modes of learning and instructional design and curriculum management and learning management systems. So we're going to talk about that in this episode and all of the changing expectations and excitement around learning, learning 2.0, and frankly, the future of content creation and learning. So without further ado, let's meet Doug. So yeah, my name's Douglas Bushong, and I've, I've worked in in technical training or training in some capacity for about nine years. And the last two years I've been working as a portfolio manager with UW Medicine. So I work in the learning management team. So we it's more of it's more like an IT department where we have a uh, we have a system that we're managing the learning management system. And uh, the but we also a large part of my time is spent with customers, uh, very often customers who are who are just learning how to uh, manage their own training program. So working with them, very often you'll get a, a an idea. I have an idea for training, and it's, okay, well, what do you have behind that? Do you have proper sponsorship? Do you have uh, what are the goals of the program and so on? So we work with them. Uh, to get their their training projects ready to, to be put onto the LMS, but also to have the governance going forward. So, and you're talking about when somebody has an idea, mm-hmm. that's actually something I'd love to pick up on because one of the things in doing my research um, in instructional design, mm-hmm. learning development, I have seen a, a big shift towards uh, an, this concept of design thinking. Mm-hmm. So, so sort of starting with the idea in mind and sort of flushing that out. One of the things I'd love to hear from you in terms of design thinking is how does that, how has that penetrated the, the world of learning and development? Mm-hmm. Um, how has it changed the way instructional designers take on their role? And then lastly, how do you think it's working by taking the customer through a design thinking perspective. Like you were saying, they come to you with yeah. an idea, yeah. but the idea just might be a notion. The idea might be a module. The idea might be a class. It's not the full experience. Right. So, so tell me a little bit about design thinking and how it's influenced change. So the, in, in instructional design, it, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, there is. <laughs> usually usually yeah. that's, yeah. that's uh, what so, happens. <laughs> in instructional design... A common process that's used, I believe it was developed, if you look at the history of it, it was actually developed by the U.S. Army. Okay. Um, the adding, good to know. <laughs> the, the, the adding process. Yeah. The um, analysis, and what they're talking about with the A, the analysis is needs analysis, right? Okay. And then design, development, implementation, and evaluation. And though a way that I like to think about that is, is sitting down, with, the analysis is determining what is the need, what is mm-hmm. the actual need, right? What are the requirements? So it, this aligns actually it, with with project management in that if you have a project, any project, what do you do? You start with you, you do your requirements gathering. Right. right. What are what are the requirements? What's the nature of the project itself? 
And and it's important that that's it's needs analysis, not wants analysis, right? Okay. So, so I'll have you elaborate on that. Yeah. In a little bit, but yeah. So, so and then then you you deserve, you do your design and you say, what is the general shape of the of the learning experience that will meet that need, right? Okay. And then once you've got the, that general shape and that design laid out, then you develop it and and you implement it and then you put into place. A, a means of continuous improvement and and evaluation, right? To make sure that way. in the long run you're maintaining it, but also ensure that it's did you meet the need, right. Right? 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 Did you effectively meet what you were trying to do? And and it what often happens is when somebody comes you comes to you with a, a pie in the sky idea, is they're solutionizing. Yes, they're starting with what they think is the solution. Right. Right. Yeah. So as opposed to the challenge sometimes right. or the need as you were saying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the and and what happens is, is they'll get an idea of something flashy okay you know, e-learning often fits in that category videos often fit in that and, and some very often e-learning and videos are appropriate but you have to look at what is the thing that you're trying to do so if if we have a problem of um, a physical skill Mm-hmm. Of, you know, the employees don't know how to perform X test. Uh, the analogy that I like to use is basketball. Okay. You're not going to take an e-learning in basketball. Right. No coach is going to assign an e-learning in basketball. Um, in fact, they're not even going to do an instructor-led training for the most part. Your training, it, they, they, they teach them how to do the jump shot hit on a few things, and then they practice, practice, practice. Because what is basketball? It's a psychomotor skill, right? right? Now, there are educational elements to it. You can learn strategies. You can learn plays. You can learn you know, formations. But but for the most part, what you're, there's there's a physical skill that you're training on, right? And and this is where you, you have um, varieties of what they call Bloom's Taxonomy, right? So you, in Bloom's Taxonomy, you have different levels of learning, but then you also have categories of learning so you've got your um your education which is knowledge right right? and that's what you call cognitive Mm -hmm. the acquiring of that knowledge yeah you have training which is skill-based experiential which is well no it's more psychomotor psychomotor okay so it's uh, the cognitive is about knowing the psychomotor is about doing Doing. right and then you have affective and the affective is often overlooked but affective kind of aligns to change management Mm -hmm. and that's about feeling Okay. And that's about your attitude. So you're trying to create attitudes, right? right. And and if education is for cognitive and training is for um, psychomotor, uh, I haven't heard of, I haven't heard a, a very good word for affective. I, I you know you could cynically say brainwashing, right? I mean it's attitudinal yeah, essentially. It's convincing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's it, or indoctrinating. Right. Right. Yeah. And so and and there's there I think. Words like indoctrination and such have a bad connotation. They but, do, but but you you need it. I mean, you'll think about think about the military, yep. right? When when you go through, it's amazing the transformation that happens when you. I have a nephew that's that's he just joined the navy. He's going through boot camp right now. I know. I fully expect that the person that comes out of that is not going to be the same person that went in. Right. He, it, it's. There's a degree of indoctrination. There's training. Yeah. There's psychomotor skills that they're learning. There's a basic level of education that, that takes place. But that's largely about indoctrinating, right. getting them into the right mindset. Right. And then once you've got them in the right mindset, then 
now once he's done with that, he's going to go through tech school. Now that's training. That's the education, the psychomotor skills. Right. But they've got him in the right mindset first. Right? It's interesting that you that you kind of talked about mindset. And if we go back to the wants and needs, mm-hmm. I think this is this is um, it, this would be great to unpack because requirements is a word that you used. Requirements is something I, I think we still see a lot of whether it's business requirements gathering or um, requirements for learning. Mm-hmm. But wants and needs is something very different. And then if we layer on top of that this uh, affective learning, um, where do you see it go wrong or right? So in my experience, and I think you and I worked together and saw Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. in a very specific example, people gather business requirements or learning requirements Mm -hmm. that they think are needs. Many times they are, in fact, wants. Mm -hmm. Is that because they are attracted by the bright and shiny solutioning? Is it because they're not necessarily in the growth mindset? Is it a combination of both? So, yeah, there's a lot going on there. There, there is the bright and shiny, mm-hmm. and there is the. I've heard it. I've heard it said. Every, everybody's an expert in marketing, right? Yeah. And I think to some degree you have that with training, right? So sometimes people conflate subject matter expertise with ability to train on something, mm-hmm. and. And those are two very different things. And I, I think also one of the things that, as in the, the last few years, I've been working exclusively as a project manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed as part of the, the PMI training, and I, I like this a lot, they, they, their definition of quality. Quality is the degree to which you, you achieve the project requirements, mm-hmm. right? You meet the project requirements. Right. Not exceed. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're exceeding your gold plating at that point, right? Yeah. And, but so you're you're trying to achieve reach the project requirements, and I think too often in a desire to there, I think there's often a desire to gold plate, and yeah. So it's like we, same in change management. I would say. Oh, is, I suspect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm not reaching for the gold, then I'm not doing my job. Right. And and it's like, well, what what is it that you need? And, yeah. And. What is it that will satisfy the requirements? And and then you have to clearly define what those are. So if, if you want to put it in real terms uh, the, or more concrete terms, I know that we're, that's kind of abstract what we're talking about. I, I had a, a questionnaire that, that when I'm sitting down to start a needs analysis with, with a client that I go through, and it's it starts with the simplest questions of what does the training need? And it gets them to articulate it. Mm-hmm. But then you start asking, how do you know there's a training need? Right. Right. So... And, and, and sometimes you can get really concrete about that. You can say, okay, what does the training need? We need training on slips, trips, and falls. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, why? How do you know there's a training need? Our injury rate has gone up, and the, the, we've determined the primary cause of slips, trips, and falls. All right. So now there are a few things that have happened here. You've identified a pretty concrete need, mm-hmm. but you've also identified one of the ways that you're going to measure your success on the back end. Right. Right? Right. So you're, you've... You should have an expectation that whatever training or whatever mechanism you come up with for your slip strips and falls training, on the back end, those numbers are going to go down. Yeah. Right? The number of injuries for right. slip strips and falls will go down. So then, all right, now now let's let's pull forward. Do we have do we currently have any training on slip strips and falls? Right. Um, yes. Okay. What's inadequate about it? What's the, what's your gap? Right. So now you're yeah. doing gap analysis. Mm-hmm. So. You're looking at, you're, you're trying to get really crisp about what exactly is it that you need, what is the outcome that you're looking for, what is the business goal, why do you care about that outcome? Right. You, I think sometimes people 
they'll, they'll want, there's a feather on your cap that, that you can get from a certain outcome, but it may not align to a business goal. Right. Right. So it, it's a lot easier, I think, in, in when you're doing training for things like compliance or safety or legal requirements, those are, those are places where you simultaneously, there's a benefit that you get because you can very easily align it to a business or like a regulatory goal. Risk. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, but also the, like you have a, um, uh, that there's a very concrete connection. If there's a regulation that says thou shalt do this, then you need to, it's pretty easy to define to what, it is, yeah, what it is yeah. you need to train to. Mm-hmm. And, and actually your development mm-hmm. is going to be anchored, it's going to be rooted in what the regulatory requirement is. If you have a goal, but the flip side of that is it's hard to measure your success right? without having good measurements from beforehand. So it, you, you cannot measure the injuries that you prevented. Yeah. Because they never happen. They never happen. Right? Yeah. So what do you have? Well, you can look at things like year-on-year injury rates or, mm-hmm. or month-on-month injury rates for the same same month injury rates year-on-year, right? Yeah. Um, that, that would be an example of something mm-hmm. that... So you'd have to have an example of the bad to, to, to see if, if you improved, right? Or yeah. maybe made it worse. Right. Um, on the flip side of that, you may have a, a goal of um, improving sales by a certain amount, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so... If the goal is to improve sales by a certain amount, and you determine that there's a training component to that, it's a little now you're at a place where what you actually have to train on is a little harder because it's not as prescriptive as that regulation was. Right. But on the flip side, it's easier to measure did the sales increase, right? So, uh, you know, there are trade offs there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting you talked about the how do you measure the prevented falls that mm-hmm. never happened, mm-hmm. right? And, or the and, compliance things that, that didn't happen, right? right? The, the violations. The violations yep. that never happened. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, without, without going too deep into this, I think you and I both have the military background where we know the world that is an, an intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. We can't necessarily report on. Um, all of the all of the uh, you know opportunities that were um, missed mm-hmm. uh, for intelligence reports because you can't give that information away. I'm I'm curious your thoughts on even just thinking about change management. It's very similar, right? When you think about adoption, you think about learning, you think about all of that. It's hard to measure those things. It's hard to put KPIs to those because what do you say in terms of well, we reduced the number of people that would not have adopted this. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it depends on um, the angle you're taking, but right. that's why this is pretty amorphous. So knowing that, have you seen, you know, have you seen things like social, on-demand, you mentioned e-learning. Um, have you seen blended learning change some of that? Because it, it allows us to have a little bit more of an, an informal checkpoint along the way as opposed to waiting, as you said, yeah. a year for data. What what's changed in instructional design, learning, development that's given us maybe a few more levers to pull? Yeah, I, I think I think the development tools have, have improved. Okay, right. So there's a there are a lot of things there are a lot of tools today that will when it comes to things like e-learning that'll do more for you. And the same's true in if you look at other fields like like um, game design, right? Mm-hmm. There there are Great development example. tools yeah. that people with with a lower skill set are able to to start doing things that people 20 years ago you would have had to have a higher skill set to do and so there are a few different in 
a, a good example that I that I like to use is there's one e-learning product. I won't say the name of it, mm-hmm. but we'll, we'll remain agnostic. <laughs> I always remain but, agnostic on the podcast. <laughs> but it, it's it's an e-learning product that I that we used at a previous employer. Mm-hmm. Very good, possibly one of the best, you know, in the top three of the best ones out there. Okay. Very expensive. Right. Okay. Uh, and I remember I remember in Chicago one time going to an event for developers that use this product, and. One of the, it was funny because the, the company that makes the product uh, put on the event and they 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 got people kind of liquored up before mm-hmm. they showed them the latest version. And sure, I, I thought that was pretty entertaining. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so when when they they showed a, a simple, relatively simple feature, people were cooing over it. Right, and I remember a person at, at the event saying, "I love this product because you can do anything with it." Mm-hmm. Right, and that's true. The same can be said of C. Mm-hmm. Right? You can make anything with C. Right. Right. Uh, the uh, The question is, what is the balance of what it does for you right. versus what you can do with it? Yeah. Right. And so, in, in what we have today is we. I think one of the things we have is more products that do more for you. Right. Right. So, um, w- like we were talking about, I will name this this product because I'm sure. saying something good. But yeah. <laughs> but. We were talking earlier about um, like Adobe products. Yeah, right? absolutely. Okay. I love Premiere. Mm-hmm. Okay, Premiere is it's a great product for for video editing. You can do a lot with Premiere. Um, combining Premiere with After Effects, you mm-hmm. can do an enormous amount. Um, I also love Camtasia. Mm-hmm. Now, Camtasia, I I in my experience, I can do a lot more when I start getting into deeper functions. I can do a lot more with Premiere than I can with Camtasia. Mm-hmm. But Camtasia does a lot more for me. Yeah. So a, a person with with less experience can pick up Camtasia and and bang out something quickly that looks pretty good. Some great product. Yeah. 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 And so so you, right now what you have now is software and you have tools that will do more for you. You still need to know what you're going to do with them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you you know it you can. What was the cost 20 years ago right. of, say, getting... I'll give you an example. When I worked at, at a public utility, one of the training videos that we made was what they call a hurt man rescue. So mm-hmm. we had a, a dummy that weighed about 180 pounds, and they would put the dummy up on a pole, and you, if this is an, you know, a, a person who's injured, right. who's hanging up on the pole, a lineman needs to be able to get up the pole and rescue that person, right? right? So... <clears throat> In the, in the training video, we, we had a camera mounted on the pole pointing down so you could see the, cl- the, the lineman climbing up. Yeah. We had two bucket trucks, and we had cameras pointing in from two different angles. Yeah. We had a, a, uh, camera, mount, a, a, a camera mounted on the helmet. helmet. Yeah. Uh, so, and we had, so we had multiple angles that we were able to capture. Right? Think about 20 or 30 years ago. If you were trying to capture just that, yeah. right? What would what the, the cost have been? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What yeah. would the skill set have been? Right. I mean, the, it, the amount of editing. Yes. Yeah. And, and the editing tools that you had. Right. right? So what are you? You're Pretty dealing cumbersome. With, yeah. You're dealing with film. Yeah. Thirty years time. ago. Yeah. Right. So now you you have the like, you could do that with a thousand dollars worth of equipment. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. you can get cameras pretty cheap. Yeah. You know? And and now of course you would still need the bucket trucks. You'd still need all those things, but. But you, you're able to, to do a lot more now. Now, what do you need to have? You need to have an elevated skill set. Yeah. 
you need to have access to the tools. But now you're at a place where it's not just the skill with the editing. Right. It's the creativity of figuring out what is it that I need to... Like, do I need to do this video? Sure. Or what does the training need? So if, if I have a... Um, if I, if I have to teach somebody how to do a task, and it's a, it's a two-minute task, right. but there's some complex interactions with the task, now I, have the, I can be a little bit more pie in the sky than what they could have been 30 years ago. Right. Because the budget for that pie in the sky has come down so Right. Much. The cost of entry has gone down. Yeah. I'm also curious from the standpoint, like you said, if I take that example of a utility, a public utility today, and years ago it would have been absolutely, it would have been pretty cumbersome, very, very intense investment. I'm seeing a lot on employee-generated content training, right? You and I both worked on the Workday platform together. Um, Workday learning has pushed out a lot of stuff and sort of led in this space. Others are playing, others are doing this as well, where we basically have said that who better to share that tacit knowledge, Mm -hmm. that experiential knowledge, than the employees doing the work. So I would love your thoughts on the right balance and whether or not you've seen it yet in terms of employee-generated content from the inside. Because as you're talking mm-hmm. about, I can use my iPhone mm-hmm. and go capture some pretty good video on an experiential piece. I can do some lightweight editing using iMovie or something, even on my phone, you can do some of the editing. And I can, through an LMS or possibly through even you know in, in Office 365 now, they're, they're enabling it where people can just put sort of movies in there for learning purposes um, and just put it out there and say, hey, peers, this is what, this is what I did um, you know, for a safety thing or this is what I did for a compliance thing or here's a creative way that I achieved this objective. And what it does ideally is it gets it out of your head yep. and into a consumable media. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so there are a few things here again. There's the ability for for people who who didn't go to school for four years Mm -hmm. to produce a video. Right. right? And and I'm a huge proponent of that. Like we talked about Camtasia earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a proponent of if you work in an IT department, get Camtasia for every one of your employees. Okay. Tell me more. Yeah, because... I, I'm a proponent of using Camtasia informally. Okay. So, uh, again, when we were on the Workday project, yeah. we, um, I remember a specific instance where I'm, I'm, I was going through one of the business processes mm-hmm. and I came across something weird. Mm-hmm. And so what, what did I do? I turned on Camtasia, I replicated what I saw, and I talked very informally to one of the business analysts. Right. Actually, I, I said his name in the video. Right. right? So I, I said, hey, I'm, I started this process process here, I, I click here, I enter this information, now watch what happens here, and I, I click the next step, I showed him what happened on the screen, I used Camtasia to circle it, yep. what, highlight what was happening on the screen, it was about a 40 second video, mm-hmm. wrapped it up, and, and I, I made it in 5 to 10 minutes, yeah. right? you know, yeah. and that was actually putting a little bit of editing onto it, sure. yeah. um, I made it in 5 to 10 minutes, I sent him an email with the video, mm-hmm. And then continued with what I was doing. So yeah. now what I've sent him was exactly what I would show him if I called him over to my desk. Correct. Right? And he explained, this is what's happening. This is why that business process is doing that. Yep. So now I have that information of for why it's doing that, and I can build that into the training. I also have the content because yes. I made it for him. Yeah. Right? So you can and I can remove the audio if I need to. And use it in the future. And ju- or just make a, a future audio if I want. Right. Um, so um, that's on one end, you've got that. If, if you have a tool, uh, Camtasia is a beautiful tool for that. 
take the, you can now take e-learning tools and they're cheap enough that you can get them and use them informally. Yeah. Right? So that that's one end of it. The other end of it is you, what you're talking about is decentralizing yes. training function. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, the biggest place that I've seen that happen is Wikipedia. Great example. Right. So I, I'm a big proponent of internal wikis, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, one of the departments we worked with on the Workday project, they had exactly that. They had an yep. internal wiki that employees came in. It, you know, they, they, they could go to the wiki for any information, but if they, they, they could edit it as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love about about wikis in general is they they capture the knowledge of employees who leave. Yes. I, I've I've seen multiple instances of, of an employee who either retired or was terminated or passed away and the contents of their laptop had about probably $20,000 worth of information and from the time and effort that they put into it. Absolutely. And that got returned to the IT department wiped and wiped to somebody else, yeah. right? That's institutional knowledge. That's oh, tacit knowledge. Yes. That's wisdom. Yeah. That's a lot of investment. Right. But, so, but if you go a step further, th- so there's the content of their laptop, but there's also the content of the emails that were in their email yep. profile, right? Yeah. And, and by that I mean, how many things did they send an email and receive a response that contained context for the training that they made. So now in, in a wiki page, you've got the content itself, and then you have a discussion page. Right. So if you build into your culture, use the wiki. Yep. Make the wiki the source of the knowledge that we're going to use within our department. Discussions that you have about the content, have them on the discussion page. Yes. So you're going to accumulate a pretty large discussion page. That's right. fine. And, and the more... If something is, is, is a controversial topic and it leads to a long, long discussion, you're actually going to find yourself focusing on those gray areas, those, those fuzzy areas of your business and making them more crisp. That need the attention. Right, right. And you'll, but then as employees come and go, and they will, or get promoted and are doing other things, you can go back and you can see, you'll have a new employee that comes in and they look through the content and they'll say, why isn't this in there? It, like especially if it's content around a course, right? Why isn't this in here? Go to the discussion page. You might see that two years ago they had that exact conversation, and you can see the full context of why they arrived at that yeah. decision. And yeah. perhaps the con- the conditions have changed. Sure. Okay, great. And and you can you can allow it to evolve over time, but you're capturing the information in a chewable form. Yeah. And you're decentralizing it. So I'm a big proponent of like anytime you can you can take a now, I, I don't think this is a replacement for instructional design, okay. but anytime you can decentralize those small micro pieces of information. Uh, and now, are you going to have moments of error? Yes. Are there things on Wikipedia that sure. are wrong? Sure. But I, I've heard... But that's learning. I yeah, mean. yeah, yeah. It, it's, but if, if you look, you could take, uh, you know, especially, there are scientific articles that I, I've, I've heard uh, on different lectures, scientists say... I, I, one in particular that jumps out at me, Richard Dawkins in a video, mm-hmm. said, he, he said, when he first heard about Wikipedia, he, he said, no, of course that could never work. <laughs> that, that it's, you know, everybody can contribute to it. When he went on to the pa- one of the pages, though, on an article that he, that he knew that was his field, he was blown away by how accurate it was. Now, there were a few, he, he actually said there were a few places where there were actually inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. And he went to change them, and they... they Got reverted back by somebody else, right. and so, and that's a place where there is a negotiation that takes place right. there. But if it's ninety nine percent accurate, 
for the amount of effort that was put into it. Yeah. And, and if you build into your culture maintaining it, the self-correction mechanisms are going to get you where you need to be to make a product that works. Well, and I think it also adds um, un, sort of untapped and unseen perspective, yeah. right? I think Wikipedia is a great example where people do go in, and it's sort of the crowd that does the the sort of self-policing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do think in that example, it's great that you know Richard Dawkins went in and said, okay, well, this is not exactly correct. Mm-hmm. I'm going to change it. And somebody else felt passionately enough to change it back. Yeah. That created a pathway for them to possibly say, well, what's your perspective? What's my perspective? Um, Which I think is fascinating, and I I agree, the sort of power of the commons. Mm -hmm. Something I'd like to ask you about, you talked about the decentralization and the informality of what we just talked about with the the sort of e-learning, the content creation. At the same time, and I just did a I just did a search on LinkedIn for for this, Um, just in the past two weeks, um, you you can type in instructional designer, into LinkedIn, open jobs in Seattle, and you get about 12 to 15 results. Mm -hmm. About half of those are at Amazon. Mm -hmm. So given the fact that you were talking about some of the trends, and I've seen it as well, where some of this is decentralized, um, things like workday learning and others are saying, you know what, we want employees to create the content. What what is the future? What is the... Well, why are we seeing all these instructional designer jobs still being created? Sure, sure. And and where do you think the changes are going to happen, um, whether it's at an Amazon or whether it's at a medical center or whether it's at a utility? I, so I think there are a few things there. I think you know, I know a few instructional designers in Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them I worked, I worked personally with at, at one point. And uh, my understanding is, so we were talking about the wiki, they have internal wikis okay. for their training content. Yeah. Right? And so... I, I think I think this is a, a logical consequence of actually um, agile, right? Okay. So a, a big part of agile is you have to have a, a culture of learning, yeah. right? And so it, companies going forward, I think, are, are in the past. I think you, innovation has come slowly enough mm-hmm. that a person could potentially um, go to college for four years. Get in, get into a career field, and in a relatively short period of time, know everything that they need to know to continue successfully in their job for the right. rest of their career. Yeah. and that job will last for the rest of their career. Right. Um, and I, I, I have a grandfather that that he he had an eighth grade education mm-hmm. that lasted him his entire career and yeah. he worked. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's very difficult to do now. Right, it's possible, very difficult to do. Yeah, and and so what you need to have going forward, you need more education, but you have to have a general culture of learning. You you have to, and you have to be ready to discard the the knowledge of three years ago. Yeah, because the the tools have changed, the the the, policy, the processes have changed, things are changing so quickly, and and instructional design is a field that that. It's one that is built around change. It's not built around taking a static thing and deploying it. Right. It's built around uh, developing something new. Mm-hmm. And and there's the, the whole. It, it's the difference between say operations management and project management. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you can have an office or, or an organization that that's run a certain way and has run that way for thirty years. Right. And and the, the principles of, of that of, of keeping that machine humming are are 
they change over time, but not much. But they're pretty safe. Right, right. Yeah. But with with projects, you're inherently dealing with something new every time. Yeah. Right? And so I, I think I think what we're seeing with Amazon is, I mean, Amazon is a strong culture. Yeah. And there's there's a from what I've seen of it, there's a culture of learning. What's interesting, so one when I first when I first moved to the area, um, there was an e-learning group uh, that was was set up. It, we went to one of the incubators downtown mm-hmm. to, to uh, kind of share ideas or a few presentations. The person who who had set up that e-learning group, or one of the people who set up the e-learning group, um, actually got a job at Amazon, mm-hmm. and the e-learning group went away. And what but what happened was my my understanding of it is is that person went to Amazon poured everything into the e-learning community within Amazon. And so the, 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 the work, it wasn't like, okay, I got a job now and I gave up. It was probably an increase of that. It was, it was more of, but they've built within them mm-hmm. a, a community. But from what I understand, I, w- I would be very careful about speaking about a company that I haven't worked in. Right, right. But from, from discussions that I've had and, and from what I've seen of their organization, they seem to have ingrained into them a culture of learning mm-hmm. and and a culture of tomorrow it, it, it's not a culture of sustaining what we have today yeah. but it's a culture of questioning each other and arguing with each other and yeah. and, and 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 being right is important yeah. right and um and that's that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to understand you know it, yeah i i was at um I was at Pax Dev last year. One of the mm-hmm. uh, one of the, the speakers said there, uh, "If you, how did he put it? If you're, if the time that it takes for for you to to argue about something is longer than the time it takes for you to prototype both arguments, your entire team has failed." Yeah. And That's a great, right? great point. <laughs> if you have a disagreement, prototype both of them. See yeah, what happens. do an A/B test. Right. Prototype it, demo it, and see. So, but but how do you, so how do you go to an old industry, mm-hmm. an old heavily regulated industry, right. like utilities, mm-hmm. like healthcare, right? And and how do you how do you get that type of of innovative thinking in those those industries it's hard it's really hard yeah i mean and i think this is kind of at the root of um you know why when we work together why we work together so well because oftentimes we were dealing with with people's emotions around mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. as you said highly regulated we happen to work in hr and payroll space um at a university very regulated very complex lots of intricacies a lot of people had poured their heart and soul into the you know keeping the ship afloat mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and their livelihood is wrapped up in that right, right? Um, a lot of people become what I call corporate heroes mm-hmm. um, because they've got that institutional knowledge and they can solve a pain point um, but I think one of the things that you and I also tried to instill was whenever we would run into a challenge or a problem we would say let's try it like mm-hmm. let's let's show it as opposed to tell a solution um, and I think we saw a little bit of the, the needle move there. Mm-hmm. It seems like, given, as you're saying, the culture of learning, the culture of tomorrow, that's increasing more, certainly, in the world of Agile. Um, but do you think this is something that, um, let's say, like yesterday's instructional designers, today's instructional designers, and tomorrow's instructional designers, if you were to put them all in a room, a community, if you will, and, um, and have them talk to each other, 
what do you think they would probably be the most excited about in terms of culture of tomorrow, yeah. the stuff that we don't know? And then where do you think, across all three of them, they mm. might have some concerns or challenges, or even you personally? I mean, you've been in this space a while. Yeah, so in my experience in instructional design, I'm going to hedge a little bit here. Sure, yeah. My experience in instructional design, is, there's two things that I would say about it. One, um, there are instructional design firms and instructional design organizations that have multiple tiers, and they have you'll have like a junior instructional designer, an e-learning content developer, and then a, a, a more senior designer, and they're the there's a division of labor that happens. Right. I, I've seen this in, in some organizations where I've worked, where um, it, 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 it's almost analogous analogous to a um, a, a film created in Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? So you'll have an editor, and right. you'll have the, a camera camera person, you'll have your director, and they're different people involved. And they're all different unions. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> they can only do what they can do. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then you've got Kevin Smith, mm-hmm. you know, making clerks. Yeah. And he's got his actors, in some instances, might be running the camera. Right. And, and my experience in instructional design started more like Kevin Smith, where okay. I was doing the end-to-end, yeah. right? So I was seeing every part of the process. Yeah. Um, and and I was probably putting out fewer products, mm-hmm. but I was seeing every part of the process along the way. And so with with that experience, it's that's very different than the experience that somebody might have if, if their entire career was, was in instructional design, in an instructional design firm. Right. The other thing that I would say is, in my experience, I am yet to meet, I've met, I, I've met quite a few instructional designers, I'm yet to meet one that went into high school mm-hmm. saying, I want to be an instructional designer. Okay. And they went to college for instructional design. And they, you know, everything with, like, the career from... It's not like an engineer. Like, mm-hmm. I want to be an engineer. You, you go get your degree. And you've got a clear pathway. And you've got a thousand schools with right. degrees in engineering, right? right? Uh, to pick from. So, most... Everybody that I... That, that I've interacted with in instructional design in some fashion or another fell into the field. Okay. And it's kind of like, it's probably later in the process, but I suspect that in project management, it was similar at one point. I think in change management, it's very similar. Yeah. That was my path. Right. Um, I, you know, I think change management found me yeah. is usually what I ask or how I answer when people say, how did you get into it? Mm. My answer is it, is it found me. Right. I, it sounds like you're saying very similarly with instructional design and some learning and development uh, professionals. Yeah, I, I think so. And, 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 and like I said, same with, similar with project management. What happens is people start in one field mm-hmm. and they, they work their way into it. And project management is an avenue through which they, they can advance. Right. right. But then they also, so they, they, they want to be able to, to lead projects. And eventually you transcend doing projects in one field right. and, and you're able to do projects in, across multiple fields. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think the same is true with, with instructional design very often. You, you, I'm sure you have some people who come in through graphic design, for example. Right, and which they, is a key component. Right, of, so right. They, they start doing development work and as they're learning instructional design process, they, they may move up. And I guess perhaps through that avenue, they, they went directly into it. But very often... Um, People start in in education as teachers, right? Right. And they and they and it's hard to keep teachers, right? It's <laughs> extremely hard to keep teachers, yeah. and they're not paid enough. Right. So, so very, and and that's actually a good. I, I've I've known people who 
they they went from teaching into instructional design, and their salary went up by a factor of fifty to one hundred percent. Yeah, you know, or it, it, it doubled. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and and um, I've seen others who who started, and this is where I started. My my career started in instrumentation, so I was working in electronics in the Navy, and then I went into instrumentation work in working with fuel cells, then later with natural gas, and and later with with my with uh, coal power. But my my segue was through technical training. Right. So I was I was doing the instrumentation work and then I was training p- people as a SME on instrumentation work. And that sparked my Now I also had a, a hobby of doing video editing work. Right. Right. So I I pulled those in together. I ended up going back to school yep. for for a masters and it was now I'm looking toward instructional design and I actually moved within my company. I moved into instructional design so that I could take the things that I was doing in the electrical program and move into to help all of the programs that we had, right? Yeah. So, so it's it's a field where um, you asked about instructional designers from twenty years ago yeah. versus instructional designers now versus instructional designers twenty tomorrow, years ago. Yeah. The, the, the instructional designers of tomorrow, we may start seeing more of people coming out of high school with, uh-huh. with the I'm going to be an instructional designer. I don't know what that's going to look like. Yeah, it, that's what's interesting to me is you have a there's kind of a jack of all trades aspect to it, mm-hmm. and and it, are you going to be a jack of all trades master of none or a jack of all trades master of one? Right. Mm-hmm. So do you have a, a, a field that you've worked in that you're anchored in, mm-hmm. and you're doing the instructional design work, and then you you transcend that field? Or are you trying to start at that top place where you're doing instructional design work and applying it to everything? Right. right. And and what's better? I don't know. That's I don't know the answer to that. It, it, and I think it depends on the yeah, person, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I know we've talked about this in the sense of the struggle sometimes um, we see with people that do very similarly change management. Yeah. You become kind of a jack of all trades mm-hmm. and a master of some or mm-hmm, a master mm-hmm. of many. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, without getting too much into the neuroscience and the brain capacity, although that's a big component of this, there's only so much that we, right. I mean, there's only so much that, um, we can learn and take on. And so while I would love to be a banking expert, mm-hmm. for example, cause most recently I'm on a banking project, I'm not going to become a banking expert overnight. Right. And if I take on a bunch of banking knowledge, um, at my age, it's probably going to be at the expense of something else coming mm-hmm. out. Now, I do think sometimes what I rely on is sort of a jack-of-all-trades and a renaissance man mm, or woman, yes. which goes back to your point around a culture of learning, a yep. culture of desire to learn, curiosity. Um, to me, that's something I get very excited about when mm-hmm. I think about the future of instructional designers because I see groups of people that are hungry to do the A-B testing that you're talking about, mm. to demo something, to prototype something. To you know, we're sitting in a room with a bunch of whiteboard walls. Mm-hmm. I love rooms with whiteboard walls <laughs> because what is my neural network of chaos can sometimes be put out there and prototyped. Um, so I agree. I think yeah. I think it will be very exciting to see if there are people listening that want to get into instructional design or learning development. What would be some of your advice to them? Where to start? What to look at? Yeah. Where to be curious? So a lot of it depends on, on where you're coming from, right? right? So if you're whatever field you're in, you know, look for opportunity. A, a good segue is training of some kind. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're doing, if, if you're doing technical work, 
does your company have some kind of training program for that technical work? And so my, my, my experience started, again, in power generation utilities. Mm-hmm. So most utilities have some kind of training programs. Absolutely, right? yeah. And so there, that, that's a place where if you can start, you can start actually with training within your field. So if, you're, if you develop a degree of expertise in your field, be it banking, be it you know, electrical work, be it um, human resource, social work, mm-hmm. right? Take the time to get the expertise in your field. From there, position yourself in a way, and, and, and work with your management to, to say this, or to, to make this happen. Um, position yourself in a way that you become an expert in a specific area of your field, and right. then begin learning about training. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, go back to school. Mm-hmm. Go back to school. Learn about the nature of education, and, and how learn about how people learn. Right. And... And so while you're doing if you if that's a field that you're interested in getting into, I would encourage people leverage what you already know. Yeah. Now if you're if you're just starting, then then I would I'd be inclined to say um, start with a firm foundation in education. Okay. Right? And 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 accept the fact that if you're going into some kind of education program, you're probably going to be surrounded by people who want to become teachers. Absolutely. And that's okay. Yeah. Right? Um, when I when I did the ed tech program at Boise State, most I that was an interesting case where at Boise State they have they have two tracks kind of for if you want to go into instructional design. Okay. One at the time it was called the IPT program, Industrial Performance Technology, I think, and it was run by their engineering department. It was an instructional design program for engineering. Mm-hmm. That's the program you would do if you wanted to do instructional design for an organization for professionals. Right. They also had the ed tech department. Okay. And the ed tech department is education technology. It's more for, it's designed more for teachers. Right. Um, for like classroom teachers yeah. and those that are going to be, 12, yeah, K through 12. Yeah. But what I, I chose to do the ed tech one um, for a few reasons. One, because when I looked at the electives that they had available, they had much more at the time in the way of multimedia-based electives. Right. And that was, that was what I was interested in. Yeah. So how are you going to use things like edutainment? Yeah. How are you going to use... Um, uh, oh, that's such a bastardized word. But, <laughs> but how are you going to use the, um, the technology you have available yeah. to teach? But also, how are you going to regulate and not overuse, you know... Like blended learning, that's the cliche term. It, it, it is the term, but I think it's it's grossly overused. Yeah, I would agree. Um, good learning should probably be blended, mm-hmm. right? Generally speaking, mm-hmm. and so you should have if you're if you're teaching a skill, you should have some demonstration of that skill in, in as part of the work that you're doing. Right. So, and this is where this is where the edu- the learning theories help you. So, when you're when you're taking something like a when you're looking at Bloom's taxonomy, and you've got a, uh, a something that you need to train on, well, you look to the taxonomy and you say, "What the normal thing that people say is give them a test at the end. That's your evaluation method." Right. right? So if I'm trying to teach you how to knit, perhaps a test is not the appropriate, or a written exam is right. not the appropriate way to do it. So what is the appropriate way to do it? What can I do to get you to a higher level of application? I can I can give you a task where let, let, let's pull on <laughs> pull on that knitting thread, right? Yeah, and uh, I could I could have you demonstrate 
the specific motions individually. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's at the lowest level. You're you're repeating the movements, right? I can I can have you start, you know, chaining them together in a way and 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 demonstrating much more complex work. I can have you start copying a general structure. So right. now you're you're going from knitting just a, a string to you're knitting something larger, like a, 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 a scarf or, or a sweater or something like that. Right. And then eventually, you're working your way up to the highest levels where you're creating new ways of knitting, new techniques. New, new, new stitches, new right. patterns, new right. threads, yeah. So then a question to, to address in your instructional design is, is what can I do to keep pushing the learner? There, there's, there's a... A degree of rote memorization that needs to happen. Right. And then you need to be able to work your way up to explanation of what it is you're doing. But then you, you start working up to what can I do to get them to apply it? Right. What can I do to get them evaluating it? What can I do to get them creating new things? Yeah, that's super learning is yes. what I call it. Yeah. Like I, you know, it's, it's the, the learning that somebody didn't even think they had the capacity to do. Right. Yeah. And, and that, man, that transcends so much more than just education. You know, I, I, love, watching, I love watching the UFC, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Eddie Bravo, he's a he's a, a, a he runs Ninth Planet, okay. Tenth Planet Jiu Jitsu, and, and he uh, I, I see him on Joe Rogan's podcast a lot. Mm-hmm. Eddie Bravo has a lot of videos out there for things that he's done to to kind of to try to advance uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yeah, so, the techniques. Yeah, so he's he's uh, he he specializes in this thing he calls the rubber guard, and and he has progressions that that he works through with the rubber guard, and and. He's at a point where there, there's training where you're repeating the movements you've been taught, and then you're applying the movements you've been taught, and then you're, now you're applying them against the resisting opponent, right? Right. But he's getting to a point where he's he's creatively coming up with new things, yeah. right? Yeah. That that's some high level high yeah. level stuff. So, but he's 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 able to apply them because he's so rooted in, in the foundation. He's got the strong foundation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you saw the same thing with, with you know, sticking to the OC with, yeah. with Ronda Rousey when she was doing, she was hitting really unusual arm, bar, arm bars and, um, you know, throws that, they barely looked like a throw, but when, when, when someone's trying to take her down, yeah, and, the and she, she falls into a throw. Right, yeah. Um, it's because she was so rooted in what she was doing, but she was able to creatively start creating. Yeah. You know. And probably, I imagine, I mean, uh, while I've never, I've, never, uh, I've never been in a UFC ring, I've watched a few <laughs> UFC, uh, you know, uh, fights. Yeah. Uh, but I imagine some of it in that example would be things like a fighter might uh, study human physiology they yeah. might study um you know things around uh gravity they might study like they might just go into a little bit of why does the body fall the way it does you know what uh a little bit about the human skeletal system yeah, or whatnot so as you start to sign up find these threads that may at initial glance mm-hmm. won't affect the way they perform in this task mm-hmm. but because they've taken it into sort of that additional orbit of learning um it does it actually improves their performance yeah exactly and and that's so typically, when you see Bloom's taxonomy, mm-hmm. you see it as a triangle. Okay, and they, you, it's one of those things like Maslow's hierarchy, where yep. where you start with um, uh, memorization or like regurgitation, yeah. right? and then you're working your way up through the levels, and it's shown as a triangle. I tend to there are separate triangles for psychomotor, affective, and cognitive learning. Yeah, I tend to see it as more of a pyramid. Okay, they, they, so they lean on each other. Yeah, right. 
So you've got, you're right. The knowledge of the skeleton and, and the knowledge of, of the way the body moves and the way that it works will feed into, and the knowledge of, of the, the raw knowledge of the techniques, Absolutely. learning the techniques yeah. themselves, uh, feeds into the, the training and the practice that you do. And also, you're, there, there's an attitude com- component to that too. So, and by attitude, you could almost call it like predispositions. Yeah. So somebody may may determine that just over time, they're, they they get comfortable do, doing. They might do a certain technique so many times that they get really good at that. And there's a reinforcement, especially when somebody says, "Man, you're really good at that." Well, what happens? You 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 yeah. want to do that. You want to so strive. You get better at it, right? Yeah. And so your attitude feeds that as well. And so you're, you're they're leaning on each other and pushing it upward more. And and it's a it's a beautiful thing when you get somebody clicking where they're mm-hmm. like their attitude is, is really an attitude of learning. They're they're really excited about what it is that they're learning. They're they're taking they're, they're finding ways to ap- apply skills and to physically manifest the thing that they're trying to learn, and they're just absorbing the knowledge. It's yeah. But you you it's very hard for somebody to make the learning. It's it's hard to make the learning sticky. Mm-hmm. If if all you're doing is throwing them a wall of information, yeah, right? or or just having them practice a skill with no context of what the skill is, yeah, or if you're or if you're trying to motivate them in some way without letting them without backing that motivation with information and knowledge, right? Yeah. So they all they all feed into and feedback. Each other. I mean, that's a great example of where you talk about the three different triangles mm-hmm. and how you got to put them together to. Essentially, form you know form a, a stronger base mm-hmm. and, a, and a pyramid to build on, um, which is not always going to happen, right? I mean, I almost looked at, as you're describing the three triangles a little bit like a Venn diagram. Yep. If we were to flatten it, you know, where's the overlap mm-hmm. and where's where do all three of those come together mm-hmm. and how often do they come together? I think one of the things I try and work with a lot of the, the amazing young talent um, that I work with every day. It's to remind them there are certain days that not all three of those things will overlap. Yep. Um, and don't get disappointed by that. Don't get discouraged. There are times all three hit, and you are you are firing on all pistons, mm. and that's great. Celebrate that. Um, so those are those are certainly learning opportunities. Um, as we kind of come to a close, I would love to ask you a question. Yeah. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would love to share, or um, something that jumped into your mind as we were as we were talking? Um, that I haven't covered. Well, I, so I, I just have just kind of a few questions for yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> are you familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk? Yes, I am. Okay, yeah. So Gary V. Uh, he the first time the first time I saw him, I had no idea who he was. He was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Okay, actually. it was a good. If you haven't seen it, really good podcast. Okay. Um, I but I didn't know who he was. The second time I saw him, he stood out in my mind because it, w- it was a quick video. And I, at some point, he dropped an F-bomb in the video. That's yeah. Uh, but he's, he was walking down an escalator. And it, it must have been a follow-up to a previous video where he was talking about creation versus documentation. And so things like um, old, old podcasts right. are, are kind of like a, a hybrid of the two, mm-hmm. right? So you, you, we, we have a microphone between us, and we're documenting this discussion, this thing. Right. Right. There's that, and then they're, they're on one extreme of creation is you're, you, you have a script and you have your, your, your storyboards and, and the things that you're creating. On, on the other end, uh, what should be the other end is reality TV. But, yeah. But actually what, what Gary Vee does is, is documentation where he has, he has people 
I'm assuming on his payroll. Right. They follow him with a camera. Yeah. And when he has discussions with people, he's capturing. Yeah. And are you finding mm-hmm. with the with the podcast that, that you're doing, are are you finding yourself leaning more toward creation or documentation or with the podcast and the other work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, I think it's probably more along the lines of documentation. Mm-hmm. And another word I might throw on the table is curation. Yeah, so yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of the curating of content. Um, and and it's not content in the sense that it's predetermined. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, I might have sort of a, a list of people or topics or industries that I hope to tap into mm-hmm. based on hobbies, based on interests, based on experience. Um, but I probably look at it more along the lines of um, there's, a, there's a lot of stories out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that is a blend of art and science. And the way I approach the podcast is to, to curate some of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, yes, I mean, certainly I wrote down questions yeah. that I, that I want to think through when I'm asking or interviewing someone such as yourself. And that's probably more to do with, you know, meeting them where they're at. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I'm not, I, I don't have years of instructional design, but as I mentioned before, I'm going to do my best to um, understand and come from a place of curiosity and empathy, what your world is like. And then it allows me to ask questions, I think, that are probably more um, compelling, I hope. So for me, that's where the curation part comes in. I think it is more documentation. So it's documenting people's experiences. It's Mm. documenting their perspectives. It's documenting their learnings. And then I share. The the sharing part for me is really really the gold part of this because I've already noticed in, in a year of doing this that Sometimes people come back and say, what this person shared is something that I had in my head that mm-hmm. I've never said out loud. Or yes. I thought I was the only person that thought that way. Yep. Um, a great example that I might have told you before was, I think, um, on the second or third podcast I recorded, we were talking about mentorship mm-hmm. and, and how that's changed. And you know, I shared that podcast with a number of people, um, including um, a relative who's a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. And that freshman in college said that podcast was by far one of the most helpful things that she heard and she shared with her colleagues uh, on her dorm floor. Mm. Now, did I create that podcast and let that conversation be generated with that intent in mind? I did not. To me, the uh, serendipity of it and the beauty of it was it still had the result. You created the situation whereby the documentation could occur. Correct. Right? Yeah. And yeah, and, and so part of the reason why I mentioned that is your point about creation versus curation is, is a very good one. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a space where I think instructional designers of the future are probably going to be better equipped yeah. than instructional designers, definitely instructional designers of the past, but even instructional designers of today. Um, actually, uh, Peter Wallace, mm-hmm. uh, a, a guy that I worked with on the, the Workday Project, he he mentioned that to me one time. He said uh, that he believed that in the future the problem won't be a problem of creation, it'll be a problem of curation. And that's more so true in an environment where the attitude is around documentation versus creation. Right. right? Yeah. We have more people and they're more they have easy tools for creating content or documenting. Yeah. So now the question is, you're an instructional designer. How do you 
pull these things what together. do you do with it all yeah like one of the <clears throat> so one of the, the first classes that I took at uh, the Boise State program was called YouTube for Educators mm-hmm. and one of the it's so simple but I, I haven't seen this enough one of the, the things that they had us do was create a playlist right so you make a video introducing the lesson mm-hmm you say these are the objectives that I want to that, that this this playlist is going to target, right? And you put that at the beginning of the playlist, and then you start curating. Right. You pull videos together that target those objectives. Yes. And then you make a conclusion video. Right. And you put that at the end of your playlist. Yeah. So now you and the beauty of that is is there's a big difference between that and say a copyright infringement because what you're doing is you're meeting the intent. Of the person who is uh, who created that original video, right? You're directing people to their channel. You're adding to their view count. If they have advertisements, those advertisements are being That's seen. And value enough. generation for them. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Yeah. So, but so it, it gives you. A, you're, you're actually by creating that playlist, you're creating a almost a contract with them. Yeah. That the people that you send to your playlist, you're going to send to their playlist. It's an art playlist. exhibit. Yeah. And that's the analogy yeah. I, I, a lot of times I use is when you think about exhibits that are set up mm-hmm. in art museums or experiences that are set up in multimedia, yeah. you know, um, you as a curator are pulling certain art pieces so that when the person walks through a space, mm. it, it, it's evocative. It yes. brings up emotions. It makes them connect in a certain way. That's exactly how um, I would see something like that, a playlist. Mm-hmm. Very, no different than... Um, curating a lynda.com playlist. Yep. Yes, the content's there, but it's your perspective on the world yep. as a learner that puts it in the order it goes in so it maximizes the effectiveness and the impact for the learner. Yes. So now you asked about the instructional designers 20 years ago. Yeah. What capacity did they have to do that? Right? Right. And, and you can even go a step further and look at if you look at the history of, of television, I don't know how much time you have. So we're good. We're good. We'll, we'll go as long as we need to. If we need to break it up into <laughs> yeah. two, we will. But Look at the history of television, right? The, you had the VHF stations and your UHF stations. Yeah. And, and they, these were different frequencies. And these were frequencies that the FCC granted a monopoly to right. a corporation over that frequency, right? And the intent was, and I think they had rules around, you couldn't own more than one VHF and UHF station. Right. right? You, couldn't, you couldn't buy up every UHF frequency. For right. Them, right. And so they grant a monopoly to the, to the corporations that, that own them. But the, the, the intent of the UHF stations was to allow for smaller local, um, local mom-and-pop TV stations to sprout up. To get their and, content. And get things like local news and, right. and to share that information, Right. That was the intent. Now, it, it may have worked to that way to some degree in some in some markets. Yeah. You know? Where I grew up, I remember the channels were, and there may be some expert out there who hears <laughs> and can, can divine where I grew up from this. Right, but yeah. The UHF channels were 17, 19, 23, 25, 43, 45, 49, 55, and 67. And, and those were, and, and, and between those, it's static. It yeah, was, it, was, you know. it was snow, yeah. yeah. You were doing the thing that, that you're not yeah. supposed to do, right? Absolutely. But the intent was, is that you could have a local station. And I knew some people who had a local local TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But that didn't take off very well. Right. It didn't last long. And then YouTube came. Right. YouTube then, is what, what the FCC wanted with UHF, yeah. right? And so now the barrier to entry is gone. It's non-existent. And, yeah. and that's exciting for the creator, yeah. right? For the instructional designer who's a creator. They can start getting content out there and they can create, they can create massive, multi, or massive MOOCs, mm-hmm. massive open courses. Open right? online courseware, right? yeah. Course. yeah. And I, I started to go down the MMORPG. Oh, yeah. yeah it's like, no, 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 MOOCs. But um, they can start creating those and put those out there. But even those, those are wonderful. And, I, and I've taken some and they're great and, and the, the barrier to entry is low there. But we're hitting a point where why on earth would I spend... 10 minutes making a how-to video on something if that video already it's exists already, yes right right so now I'm I'm seeing places where I can curate more the instruction designers 20 years from now yeah it, it's gonna be it's gonna explode well a word I wrote up on the whiteboard was learning architect yeah it's something that's emerged as I did research um, and I love that concept mm. because I think it's a little bit of it's a little bit of curator mm-hmm. um, and um, I'm someone who is passionate about architecture. Never thought I would have been, but I read one of my favorite books of all time is The Fountainhead by mm-hmm. Ayn Rand. And I actually got into architecture because of that book, because of the way it described you know, buildings. I've never quite looked at them the same. Um, but I've always loved that analogy of a learning architect mm-hmm. because you know, the archite- architect is designing a piece of art, essentially, that has function to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where... We may start to see things like learning architect in job titles, um, which, as you as you know, an architect needs to understand how a building works, needs to understand the components that go into it. But really, ultimately, what they they're really really focused on is um, the the design, the integrity mm-hmm. of meeting that um, you know meeting that design and that yeah. that that um, end state, that goal for for a building. Yes, um, the use of the building, the appearance of the building. The emotional reaction somebody has when they walk up to the building, I think that is, that's what I'm very excited about possibly happening in the future. With as you're talking about people creating, curating, mm-hmm. and documenting. Well, and and that that fusion, like UX UI. Right? Yeah, I mean what you're talking. Which we talk a lot about, right? Firm, right. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about the fusion of of form and function. Yeah. And and recognizing that there's function in the form. Yes. Right? Yes. That's something that that's often often lost on people. That, that the the idea is, I, I just need it to work. Yeah. Right. And and fair enough. If if you're making a tool for yourself, perhaps perhaps it can be this this completely unoptimized tool. But it's optimized because you built it. You know where everything is. Correct. I mean that's 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 a messy desk. Your right? mind map. It's your mind map. Yes. It's not somebody yeah. else's mind map. Yeah. yeah. And if you've got a if, if you've got a messy desk. But you know exactly where everything is on. Is it optimized for you? Possibly. Right. Can anybody else ever use it? No. Right. right? I mean, and that's that's a, a simple, that's a crude analog form of, of, of UX UI. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but yeah, the idea there that the there's a gelling of function and form, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring us to a place in terms of education. I think we're, gonna, we're coming to a place where... Creative fields are going to be more important. Yeah. Um, especially as things get automated. If we hit a point, for mm-hmm. example, where where coding can be automated, right? Yeah. Where, where you can, where you, that's the highest level point where you can where you can give a set of requirements, and the machine can interpret the requirements and produce something for you. Right. Now, now you're really talking about you. You need you'll need the the technical skills. 
But you need to have the creativity feeding the technical skills to know where am I going to apply the technical right. skills. And you need to, to not have, lose the impact. Yeah. yeah. And you need to have enough of the technical background be, to temper your, your, the creative ideas and to, to put you on rails, which will actually increase your creativity. Yeah. Those serve, <laughs> as, guide, those serve as sort of guide rails and guideposts yeah. so that you don't come in with an idea that is so outside of the parameters that it can't be done. Yeah. And, and you, you have, yes, I, I think in, in the future, the, the Renaissance person mm-hmm. is going to have to become the norm. Yeah, that's exciting to me. It's exciting and it's terrifying. Yeah, well, it's also going to upend a lot of people's um, their their way of working, frankly. Right, right. Um, and and it's going to happen so quickly, and the change from one generation of Renaissance person to the next Renaissance person is that is going to get compressed. There's probably like sixteen Renaissances in in between, right? Like there's there's. How many happened in a lifetime? Exactly. Right. Right. How many happened in, in a lifetime hundred years ago? Yeah. Versus now. Yeah. The, and that's where that's where it comes back to, if you have a culture of learning and if you have a continuous learning mindset, you can you can keep yourself in a place. You have to be willing to be ruthless. Yeah. In shedding your own skill sets. Yeah. And and continuing to move forward with them. Yeah, there was there was a gentleman. Um, one last note I'll, I'll share before we wrap up. Yeah. Uh, a gentleman reached out to me on on LinkedIn recently, and I thought it was really impressive. He talked about every nine to eighteen months, depending mm. on what he's working on, he writes himself a letter of resignation. Oh, nice! And in that letter of resignation, he talks about the skills and tactics and methods that he is sunsetting, so that he can dedicate brain power, curiosity passion, interest to the things that he's seeing coming across the mm. horizon. That's um, beautiful. I and I that. actually was really excited mm. about that, but I understand. I'm a very empathetic person. I understand how that concept alone could terrify people. Oh, yeah. um, especially if you've invested time and money and education and livelihood and corporate heroism into those things that you're asking yourself to write a letter of resignation to. So well, there, there's that for your internal skills. And then it goes to what we were talking about earlier. What if... So when we were on the Workday Project, we were replacing some systems that were put in place in the 80s. Yeah. With people who were there. When it was put in. When it was put in. Yeah. And the intermediate steps in between. Mm-hmm. Now what happens? You've got this emotional connection to your baby yeah. that you put into place. Let's say it wasn't so extreme. Let's say it was something you put in place ten years ago, yeah, and and that was the the amazing thing. You got awards for that, yeah, you know. And now it was a breakout right. career moment, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a breakout career moment, and your career advanced, and you. But that was your baby, yeah, and, and it remained your baby. Let's say you mm-hmm. stayed there for a long period of time. Now someone's coming along and they want to remove it, and the context of why they want to remove it, you know, you, you say, well, this is done this way because of this. And perhaps you don't recognize that that reason why you had it is no longer a reason the company cares about. Right? Yeah. And so how do you accept people want to have a legacy? Yes. Right. You talk about That's artists, a human desire. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you want to have Architects a want to have a, yeah, a legacy. I remember my the first job out of the military, the, uh, I, I worked at a fuel cell company. And I remember my director saying there's a satisfaction that he gets with knowing that he goes to a location, there's a slab, a concrete slab. Yeah. And when he leaves, there's a power plant there that's generating electricity, yep. right? 
and, and yeah, and that's a and and I got that, and that's a beautiful thing. And and then especially when you come back, there's a sense of satisfaction when the city of Seattle's exploding. Right? Yeah, I, I buildings I lose, popping up. On my on, on a bus ride in, I lose count at around twenty five the number of cranes that I see. Yeah. Right? So, what set if you're the a project manager or an electrician mm-hmm. or, or you know or anybody that worked on that project, when that project's done. And you are there with your family ten years later, you and you see that. that building. It's like, yeah, I did that. Yeah, right. There's a sense of satisfaction that you have with that. Well, what happens when when and that building is is not going to go away in ten years. Right. Might not go away for your entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. When it does go away, there's probably a moment of, of sadness that comes. Absolutely. Yeah. What happens when you have people feeling that moment of sadness every three years? Exactly. Every eighteen months. Yeah. And performance measurement and performance management tools and processes and policies have not caught up with that. Right. Writing yourself a letter of resignation every eighteen months. Yeah, and so the, the that's beautiful. The 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 letter. The nice thing about that idea of the letter of resignation is, so you have to almost get yourself to a mindset of, I'm here to improve me. Yes. And that's not going away. Right. And and if if something that I created along the way is a that's some, that was part of my legacy, but the legacy is is the ideas that I have and right. and, and how much I, I've improved myself. That's a that's a that's a religious concept. At that yeah, point, right? I mean it, it starts to become pretty ethereal at that yeah, point. Yeah, I do think that would be um, we should definitely have a follow up yeah. follow up discussion on this because now I'm thinking about it. I, I do think your analogy of the buildings is so is such a powerful one because. Somebody can come back, they can bring their family, they can bring their own legacy and point to, I helped create this. Mm-hmm. I, a thing I would love to talk to you about in the future, because this is something I think people in, you know, in my ecosystem struggle with, and I, I imagine you do too, is we're kind of moving in this fashion of creating intellectual capital, a mm-hmm. lot of intellectual capital. It's no different than the, we talked about the creation, curation, documentation. Yeah. But, but if I can't point to a building, mm-hmm. and I worked on something for 18 months, and 10 months later... It is gone, mm-hmm. or we have moved past it, or the business has decided to go in a different direction. I think that's fair, but I'm curious, and we again, I think this is a whole other episode, the psychological impact um, on somebody um, and, and what that means. Where do you search for validation? Where do you search for meaning? Where do you search for contribution? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, kind of bringing it back to what we were saying about the future of teachers and the future of learners that's a big one i don't i don't know i I don't know where the answers are in that yet but that's certainly something that i think about a lot yeah and and it's it's dealing with dealing with ambiguity yeah and uncertainty yeah yeah Yeah. two things that you know usually those ending in uh in ty um Mm People don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time in the ambiguity, the uncertainty. Um, given the option, I think they will run the other way. Mm. And I think we're seeing less of that. So, Yeah, cool. Thank you, Doug. This yeah, was awesome. Sure. I will definitely have you on um, a future because there's, there's a lot <laughs> we packed in there. Right? I mean, I think we, right. we, talked, we talked UFC. We talked Amazon. <laughs> we talked utilities. Uh, we covered a lot of territory, yeah. which is really good. I appreciate your time. Um, and certainly look forward to having you on again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. 
I hope to have Doug on in the future where we can continue our discussion about the future of learning. Since we've had this conversation, uh, a lot has changed even in the learning space, and I've been reading quite a bit around augmented reality. So as Doug and I were talking about the examples in utility uh, safety training, I've now been reading quite a bit around the power of augmented reality and how you can use that to complement training, safety training specifically. If you enjoyed this episode and this discussion, feel free to share it with uh, some friends or maybe some members of your corporate learning team. And as always, if you have ideas or recommendations or guests you'd like to have on the podcast, shoot me a note. Thanks for listening.